Hello, I'm Gail. And hi, I'm Catherine. And welcome to Women Over 70, Aging Reimagined, our weekly podcast. Our signature is sharing stories of vital women between the ages of 70 to 100 plus who shatter the myth that we become irrelevant as we age. Be sure to visit womenover70.com, make a donation, join Aging Reimagined Circle, and visit the Books by Women section. Invite us to conduct a workshop or speak to your organization. We share relevant clips from podcast guests and offer numerous programs to enrich women's lives. Today, we're delighted to welcome Gail Steingold to our show. Throughout her life, Gail Steingold, soon to be 71, was always interested in improv. Before she could get to it, though, she spent 22 years working in clinical speech pathology. Perhaps it was her own lisp that ignited her interest. She grew up in Milwaukee, and after working in different states, she came back to the Midwest. It was there Gail switched professions and became a licensed insurance professional, focusing on long-term care insurance. While still working in insurance, Gail allowed improv to enter her life. It's 15 years now, and she has wonderful stories to share with us. So welcome to Women Over 70, Aging Reimagined, Gail, and we're glad to have you. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Good. So let's start our conversation by you sharing with us what it meant to you as a kindergartner, if you can remember all that way back, to have a speech impediment, and then how you found your way into working with language and learning disabled children. Well, that's really interesting. I, I felt um, special, but it wasn't always feeling good special. Um, I went into the sessions with these two twin, these twins. I shouldn't say two twins because twins are two people, obviously. <laughs> a girl and a boy, Marilyn and Harold. Um, I can't use their last names, but um, for privacy. But <laughs> they they had our problems, so it was Harold and um, Marilyn, and I had a frontal lisp, and I didn't know it. My parents never said anything about it. I never got taunted by other kids about it. So um, I was really surprised, but um, I kind of felt special, um, but a little bit bad. And I, I'm sure I felt that I might be missing something in class, but I felt very proud to get stars um, on a ladder every time I apparently, you know, it met the criteria of not having a frontal list. But I do remember it mm. and um, reverted to it uh, through really through high school sometimes if I just wanted to sound different. But I was able to get, you know, past it as well. But it did follow me really all through uh, college and actually my first speech and hearing position in Atlanta, Georgia. And and I was told that I still had a frontal list. Mm. Um so that's kind of interesting, isn't it? I just thought about that. <laughs> yeah. So uh, when did it leave you then? I'm sorry? When did it leave you? When did it? I guess it never did. <laughs> so um, although nobody notices it now, I could probably do it. Um, but I think um, it always, I always listen to people. And to this day, if I hear somebody, especially an adult, with some sort of, and we call it an articulation, 
um, uh, disorder. Um, it makes me a little crazy that they didn't do something about it when they were younger. So I think even at a younger age, um, there must have been something in me that said, I've got to help people. I've got to, this doesn't sound right. I've got to fix it. Mm. Um, I, I think that really stayed with me, actually. But I guess this, the list could still be there, but I don't think anybody really notices it that much. No, not at all. So Not at all, right? Right, right. So how did you, so, you know, what did you do? What path did you follow to become uh, a, a clinical speech pathologist? Well, actually, um, I did get pulled out in high school, and I found that in, when I was a freshman, and I found that very disturbing, but I was alert to it, and actually, I always loved science. And when I was still in elementary school, I wasn't big on camp, on overnight camp or even day camp. I hated it, actually. I went to a few day camps and one overnight camp, and that was the end of that. Camp Sydney Cohen. Now, who would want to go to a camp? It's Camp Sydney Cohen, but I did um, for two weeks, and that was the end. So I started taking summer school, and I took science when I was in elementary school. And when I was in fifth grade, I wanted for Hanukkah, I asked my parents for a microscope set. I never told <laughs> you that. And um, my uncle was a doctor and my mother's brother. And so I really hung around my uncle Alvin quite a bit in Milwaukee. And I just was always interested in the sciences, but also I was also as a little kid interested in putting on shows. Uh -huh. um, so yeah. I, I really have, I don't really get it myself, but science was really important to me, uh, striving to learn more. But on the other side, there was, let's have a show every summer <laughs> in the backyard. <laughs> uh <-huh. laughs> yeah, yeah, we have some similarities. I didn't, I didn't mention that we've known each other for quite a long time now and have been business colleagues. And so, yeah, we do have similarities. That's for sure. Besides our names, right? Besides our names, right? Exactly. Yeah. 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 So, so then you went to school to be a clinical psycho, a clinical yes. uh, pathologist, and you worked in in it for years, right? And who did you teach, or how did you do well, that? Well, just to, just as a sidebar for our generations, um, my interest in science was always there, and I, I. I did want to be a doctor. Um, I thought I'd be a great, you know, like a pediatrician and work with children. Um, so I was always very curious and, and in many ways, very analytical. Um, but when I got to college, um, you know, my, my parents were of the such, I was the first and only one in my family to uh, finish college. And um, my mother basically said, oh, you just will want a little career. You know, she used the word a little career right. and I, I can't blame them, but I guess I just didn't have the confidence to pursue medicine. So I wanted to choose an allied health. I didn't know it was allied health. So I chose speech pathology because of my own exposure, you know, to, to speech therapists. Mm -hmm. And um, because there's quite a bit of science, uh, health sciences involved in psychology, um, I, I pursued that and I was very driven to know what I wanted to do when I was a freshman. And so I immediately got into Wisconsin at, uh, in their communication disorders program when I was a freshman. So I went straight through 
and um, got my undergrad bachelor's of science. I even took an, uh, I remember I took a, a, an elective of oceanography because <laughs> I heard it was supposed to be easy. <laughs> but but um, we had to do a, a project related to our majors. So I wrote a paper on the speech and hear, the hearing and speech of fish. <laughs> uh, that, and, isn't that funny? And then when I did, took a music elective, the Pro Arte Quartet, we had to do the same thing. So of course I did a paper on Beethoven and his, you know, hearing mm -hmm. loss. Yeah, yeah. So 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 you worked in that field for quite a while, and then yep. you you transferred to insurance. Why long term care insurance? Well, I worked, as you know, I, I worked, uh, got my master's degree. I worked with children the first year out of school, my clinical fellowship year in Atlanta, Georgia. So I was working with children at that time, the Atlanta Speech School. And when I moved to Chicago, I didn't want to come back to Milwaukee. My sister was already in Chicago. Um, I had to get a job. And I really didn't have that much hospital healthcare um, medical speech pathology uh, experience, but I was able to get a position um, rotating through several hospitals and did that for about six, seven years um, and uh, got married during that time and had a daughter. And I was looking for part-time work and uh, my former boss from then Grand Hospital was doing contract work in nursing homes. And so I ended up working in one hospital-based nursing home here in Chicago, Warren Bar Pavilion, at that time owned by Illinois Masonic. And um, I did that for, I was there for 14 years, it's hard to believe. Um, when I got into my eighth or ninth year, I really wanted to learn about marketing and business. I always wanted to have my own business, whether it was my own speech, speech practice, which I did part-time or um, just a business. And um, they put me in a marketing position and I met some other people who were talking about this thing called long-term care insurance. And because I was in the marketing position and working with families, the issue of money always came up. Mm -hmm. And when I was a therapist, the issue of Medicare coverage, getting, you know, discharging patients, doing home care and having to write reports and have Medicare cut me off was very frustrating. And so um, I learned about insurance while I was still at Bar as the director of marketing. And during that time, I studied for my insurance license, you know, made dinner and then went and studied and got my license in 1992. And in 1995, I left Bar Pavilion and I was hired uh, by Washington National Insurance Company as their first and only actually long-term care product manager. So mm -hmm. it was really being exposed to the difficulty and frustrations of families, um, whether when I was still a speech pathologist or you know a marketing director that people thought they were going to go be covered by Medicare the entire time at a nursing home and it didn't work that way. Mm -hmm. um, it was a problem. And again, I was always attracted, I've always been attracted to a challenge. And you know, selling long-term care insurance is not easy. And it's not an easy topic. And so, um, but I was, I'm still attracted to it. I still feel, oh, there's a problem. I can figure it out. I'm going to solve this. But it still has to do with health issues and care. Sure. And, and you said when we spoke that 
that improv really helped you with selling long-term care insurance. So, so why is improv so important to you? Well, during all this time, you know, it's not just work. You know, I have two grown children and a husband. And um, during that time, as they progressed, my husband at the time was a very avid bicyclist. He was gone a lot. Um, he doesn't golf. He didn't golf, but he would do long rides. And I felt, I saw a show on TV. Actually, it was a Bill Cosby show, uh, Fat Albert. <laughs> I don't know why I was watching it, but it was about Fat Albert as a kid going to seeing his grandmother and his parents. They all had their thing. I remember this, you know, whether it was jazz record or his grandmother knitting or his mother cooking or something. Everybody had their thing and he didn't have his thing. And I remember said, I don't have my thing. <laughs> I, I have this work, but I don't have my thing. And uh, we were involved at Steppenwolf Theater and I loved theater. And I went up, I don't know if it was Anna Shapiro or Tina Landau, but I asked them about acting classes. And they said, why don't you take a class at Second City? And I said, well, that's cool. And I signed up. And that was many, many years ago. And that's when I started taking classes at Second City um, and went through the entire training program. I had no idea what improv was. I really didn't. It was very scary, but um, you had to be in the moment. And so now to answer your question, when I'm talking on these very difficult topics, I just left a conversation before we got on the podcast. Um, I, I do bring humor in. And so when I was talking to this gentleman about coverage, international coverage, I told him I had just talked to somebody else that they go to Puerto Vallarta every year and they want coverage, um, you know, in, in, in Mexico. And I said, you know, here I am sitting here, here we're sitting here. It's like, we're worried about Puerto Vallarta. And, you know, I just kind of bring that in. And I think it's such a difficult topic that injecting some humor um, relaxes people. It makes Not sense. everybody likes it, but most of the people do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and 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 so after Second City, I you've had you've had a whole almost career in in improv. Yeah, I I called myself a professional student. Um, I there was sort of a track, and one of my favorite people, Susan Messing, here in Chicago, is just outstanding teacher. Taught at DePaul and at Columbia. Um, we met at a show that she was doing at the Annoyance Theater that used to be up on Broadway in, New, in uh, Uptown. And she said, you know, she's got this low voice and she said, well, you know, go to Second City and then you go to IO, Improv Olympic, and then you come to the Annoyance. So um, she mentored me. And mm -hmm. so I went through a year and a half at um, Second City I never felt very good. I was always frustrated. Every, I was always the oldest person in the class, needless to say. And um, I went to IO and that was really the true, in my opinion, the true essence of long form, uh, long, um, listen to me, I was gonna say long-term care of improv. <laughs> but I, always, I was the, the oldest person in the class, but I learned the techniques um, you are, you're called up and say two up and you have to think on your feet, which I think for work and what I do, if somebody all of a sudden 
gives me a wrench on the phone, I, I can't say, well, you're not supposed to say that, or wait, I didn't finish my little spiel here. You've got to respond and you build on that. So um, that's what I learned at IO. And when I got a little raunchy in the scenes, the, the kids started to um, embrace me. <laughs> so at the end of, of eight, eight week classes, we were allowed to seven eight week classes, which took over a, you know, a year, we had a um, graduation show. And the people on my from my class and team called the show Gail Steingold LLC, which oh. was <laughs> you, you know, you know what was it about? I'm sorry, what was it about being the oldest in the class that um, mattered to you? How, what was it like? Well, I felt typecast, you know, mm -hmm. it was every scene, two up, what's the suggestion, beer, and another, one of the kids would come up and say, mom, or grandma, mm -hmm. and it was my job, my job to say, I know I don't, I look like your grandma, but as your girlfriend, I don't really appreciate that. And so I could come up with something like that. You have to have a surprise. But mm. I did find that I had to work very hard to convince these kids that I could be in the moment and I didn't have to use my age as a crutch, mm. you know? And, and so there was one scene, I tell everybody about this, that this young man came up and he must've been like 19 years old. And the class yelled out a suggestion of vinyl. And I started to talk about, you know, every time we go to grandma's house, I stick to the couch. And he looked at me like deer in the headlights. He didn't know what I was talking about. And mm -hmm. he went along with it. He didn't say, I don't know what you're talking about. And I'd say, yeah. And then I went on to bubble gum and everything. But my, you know, my, my short stick to the, the couch. Afterwards, <laughs> he said, what were you talking about? Vinyls are records. <laughs> and I said, Oh my God, I thought she was talking about like slip covers, you know, and the whole thing. He, <laughs> he was amazing. I remember that young kid and he did a perfect job of not know what are you talking about or, or I want to talk about this. He went with me <laughs> and he yes and me. Yeah. And it was a great mm -hmm. thing, but afterwards he absolutely <laughs> unraveled. He didn't know what I was doing, but <laughs> I thought that was a great lesson. Yeah. And you mentioned uh, Susan Messing, by the way, and and you had told me that you told me that her TED talk, Braving the Unknown, was so well worth watching. So I'm recommending it to everybody that they watch. Oh, it's wonderful. It was wonderful. Thanks, yeah, she, thanks for um, recommending it. She actually went over that with me. I was over at her house and she said, what do you think about this? And I said, oh my God, it's TED Talk, you're amazing. But, and I, I do remember at the end, she said, "You and I had explained this to people still, that improv is, you must have another person. It's a conversation. Sure. And it's, you know, right now we're a little scripted because you have your questions, right? But um, she said, when you're up there alone, it's stand up and that, terrifies her <laughs> so um, um i don't like to be scripted when i took a dale carnegie class i only want a pen one time you get a pen if you do a really good job in dale carnegie 
and and the exercise was a one minute um, unscript, unprepared talk about your re one regret that you had. You want to know what my regret was? Sure. <laughs> I want. I said I regretted that I didn't go to medical school. Uh, yes. Yeah. Yes. But I won the pen. I won the pen. <laughs> so we when we talked, you also told me that uh, you think about aging all the time. Yep. Yeah, I'd like to hear more about that. I'm sure everyone would. Well, it's just really recently because when I turned 60, I was really flying high. As you know, Gail, I I I for my birthday show, my birthday for 60th, you know, I didn't take a trip or have a big party, but I rented out the annoyance theater and I produced my own show and starred in it. And I had three other people to improvise with. It, the, the, my 60s were just, oh, you know, I just felt young for my age, et cetera, et cetera. When I turned 70, and I guess maybe because of the profession that I'm in, I, and that my mother passed away when she was 74, my dad passed away when he was 62, very suddenly. And I talked to my sister, I said, you know, we only have, you know, we might only have 10 or 15 years. And I used to always say, well, I'll do this in five years. I always was kind of a long range planner, which isn't so great and not being in the moment. And so I realize now that my time is limited. And, you know, I can see myself aging and I'm, I find myself using my age card a little bit too much like if i'm tired or i just am getting kind of sick of doing what i'm doing some days it's like well maybe it's my age you know or um i only have so much time why am i not just booking a flight and going i did this last night actually i i pretend i i went online to book a flight to madrid of course i didn't go through with it but i thought if not now when you know mm -hmm. And I'm I'm really played with that, and and that um, I just feel I feel at times, you know, that it it's finite, and I never really felt that before. And um, but then I meet all these women in some of my improv teams, you know, the mid-century modern and and you gail and others that are my i call you my heroes because or betty white who was an exception but actually rita marino is more my hero um you know at 90 singing in this movie mm -hmm. and that there is still time but i do realize that i feel sometimes i've really wasted a lot of time or that um i'm not evaluating what i'm doing clearly that you know, I'll say, oh, I'll do this for two more years. And then all of a sudden, oh, I'm going to be 72 or 73 years old. And I, I can't explain it. It's a feeling of just not having unlimited time anymore. Mm. I didn't mean to be a downer, but I don't oh, know that. No, the, this is important to talk about this. And and um, so so how do you think that might change what you do do you think it would change what you do absolutely have you thought about how maybe it might change it well 
one thing I have done is every day, I not every day, but many more days than used to, I, I decide, am I, I've always been an overachiever. And even in fourth grade, I used to pull all nighters. So <laughs> I did. <laughs> so and I did last night almost. And, you know, I realized my body can't just can't quite take it anymore. So I am thinking more about trying to go to bed earlier. I do, because I know my body needs it. And I think about, okay, I could either keep working on this or try to sit in on a Zoom call so I can see my little grandson um, on Fridays in class, even though he doesn't wave at me. Um, <laughs> And he doesn't. No, it doesn't at all. He hides from me. So, um, so I try to say, I'm, I'm not going to have this time. I want to spend more time with X, Y, and Z. Or it's really nice out, and I don't want to miss a really nice day again, which I did so much when I was in school and working and raising a family and trying to achieve and meet all these goals. And so I do maybe now at least 30 or 40% of the time, I do stop and say, am I happy about this, you know, or is this stress in my business worth it? Or have it have a, an end game and work towards it. And I also try to do things now that reduce some of my frenzy. Um, so I'm not so hard on myself. And, you know, that's where I am. I am trying, and I'm also trying to reestablish certain relationships that I used to say were toxic or bad. And I, I do believe it or not, I surprised myself saying, you know, maybe I'm looking at those older relationships that I severed and I was looking at it at the, with the wrong set of glasses and that I, I need my friends, I, I do. And, and um, so I guess I just, I guess in a way I am being more mindful, which I know is, you know, the one of the in words now. Mm -hmm. And I do think about breathing more. So I am doing some of these things that I never, you know, I probably would go for three hours holding my breath, doing stuff, you know, really. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden I realize I haven't breathed. Mm -hmm. Is is I, I, yeah, go ahead. Is there something you would like to tell our listeners about long-term care insurance and why it's so important? Well, I was just telling somebody about that, one of my uh, colleagues that um I know of a family of uh, daughters and they found out recently their mother who raised them as a single mother has been diagnosed with um, moderate dementia. Mm -hmm. And um, I don't think they quite saw it coming because mothers are supposed to be invincible. And um, they're in a city where you have to drive and the mother can't drive now, they took her keys away, but she was alert enough to know she was having problems. And they, they didn't know, um, they didn't know if she had long-term care insurance 
or any kind of insurance to pay for this. They had no idea that you can't get this insurance once you have a problem. And so they're going through all her papers, meeting with her accountant. And these are three young women in their early 30s, you know, kind of getting their life started. One of them has children already. And I, I was asked to talk to them, you know, and help them navigate what they could look for in terms of the insurance. And she doesn't have it. And she raised these girls as a divorced mother. She just retired, living in an over 55 community and happy with her friends. And her life has dramatically changed. And the life of these three young daughters have mm -hmm. changed because they don't know if there's going to be enough money. She needs care in the home. And I have to tell you, after I got off that phone, I even now feel that way, I started to cry. Mm -hmm. because I know these girls and it's not me by the way <laughs> so um but I was upset afterwards that this could be me and I wonder oh my god I can't find the keys or what about this and I feel in a fog sometimes it was very frightening and I hear this from people who call me and m most of the time the people that call me have had some experience in their family Mm -hmm. with a long-term care event and whether they did have money and insurance made it easier and if they didn't it wasn't easy at all because and I saw it back in the nursing home so I feel what so that it's so important to have some kind of a plan with some financial element to it what is the misconception that people have about long-term care and thinking they can get it at any time. Oh, well, first of all, the misconception is twofold. Well, there's threefold that people still believe that their Medicare or their health insurance will cover custodial care to use a bad word, but that's what it is. Mm -hmm. They think it's way too expensive for them or they say it's expensive and they don't, they heard it's not worth it and it didn't pay a claim. So I have that objection. I have people too who are in total denial and they can't see that it could happen to them. And um, there's always been a cynicism about insurance companies. So, you know, I get a question a lot of times, what if Mutual of Omaha, which by the way, survived the Spanish flu as a company, what if they go out of business? Um, what if I never use it? And and so these are I there's their objections and their misconceptions. And also a lot of people say, well, I'll never get it because my cholesterol is high, and that should be the least of their problems. And um, or I'm too old or I'm too young. What's the optimum age for for people to look at long getting long-term care insurance? I I say glibly, here's my humor. I say when you're healthy and married, um, because <laughs> there's if you're living with someone, even if it's the same gender relationship, the insurance companies, having been a product manager, I know this, they love couples because couples tend to do a lot of informal caregiving. Mm -hmm. So it's not an age, but if you are still a couple, it's not a bad time as a couple to look at this together. I would say the age is when you're healthy, seriously, 
but if we are looking at an age, I would say probably somewhere, it's a wide range between 45 and not older than 65. Although we do have carriers that will insure people up to almost you know, 79 or 80, and there's other kinds of solutions that are not true long-term care, it could be a little bit older, but um, I would say that 45 to 65, we have a lot of people buying it when we used to do a lot of this at the work site. Mm -hmm. So I had people in their 40s. And the other thing people don't realize is that women are the greatest risk. And I still get a question to the insurance companies and they said, why? They don't die. And I said, that's the problem. The longer we live, the longer there's a greater chance of us needing some care, even if it's, you know, three months at the end of our lives. So women are now typically getting charged more money in terms of premium than our counter male counterparts. Mm. You didn't know that, but that's the truth. Oh. If you go into any assisted living or nursing home, you're going to see a lot more women than men, right? Sure. Yes. Right. <laughs> well, thank you for that information, because I think it's really important that that we understand it. And yeah, that's very helpful. Very helpful. So any any parting comments you would like to make? Catherine, did you have any other questions? No, I, I really appreciate um, I appreciate your philosophy of life and I appreciate your uh, information about this uh, long term care insurance. It's really really important to all of us. Yeah, I, I would say just on that note, it's a moving, it's a moving um, entity that there's been so many changes, you know, I've been doing this now full time since 1995, and on my own own since 2003. And um, I've seen so many changes um, in the marketplace in terms of companies that have <laughs> offered long term care, and now they no longer. Um, some of them have had to raise rates because we had 2008, you know, recession and on and on and on. But I always say a little bit is better than nothing. Mm -hmm. And it, it gives, it's more for your families, the real consequence to a long-term care event. As I described with this daughter, these three daughters and their mother is the consequences on the family. Mm -hmm. And so if you don't do it for yourself, do it for your family or your your surroundings, but try to maintain, you know, a little bit of humor about it and, and look at it. Is this is something just like going to bed early or not pulling all nighters that it's something you're doing that's good for you, but be sure to work with a specialist because this is really, really specialized mm -hmm. and, and um, somebody who's compassionate, but somebody who is experienced, I think is really important. Okay. Well, thank you so much for being here, Gail. We appreciate it. And well, I enjoyed it. <laughs> Great. And listeners, please subscribe to our podcast and leave a review wherever you listen. Also, visit our website, womenover70.com, and easily access all of our episodes. Become a member in the Women Over 70 Age and Reimagined Circle and enjoy programming beyond the podcast. See you next Wednesday on Women Over 70. Aging Reimagined.